Hello and welcome to the Amplifying Scientific Innovation video podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sophia Onoye Onye, founder and CEO of the Sophia Consulting Firm, a life science marketing and communications consultancy that was established in New York City with the goal of amplifying scientific innovation. The goal of this podcast is to showcase scientific innovations stemming from global life science companies through conversations with senior leaders who share their unique leadership journey, corporate vision, and industry outlook. My guest today is Ms. Janet Lynch-Lambert, CEO of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, the leading international advocacy organization dedicated to regenerative medicines and advanced therapies. Janet is a life science professional skilled in standing up a corporate government affairs program, federal and state government relations, political action committees, building an integrated corporate external affairs program, launching coalitions and creating new content to drive media and policymaker attention to an issue. She has diverse experience in communications, legislative affairs, marketing and foundation management as evidenced by leadership roles in life technologies and the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. She holds an MBA from Georgetown University and a BA in political science from Stanford University. I was connected to Janet through the amazing Dr. Bruce Levine, professor at Penn, co-founder of Community Therapeutics, a Penn spin-out and a member of the ARM Board of Directors. Moreover, I'm a big advocate for increased representation of women and minorities in STEM leadership positions and clinical trials. Welcome to the show, Janet. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure as well. So I usually start with my favorite question, which is, what is your definition of scientific innovation? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think about it in a couple of ways. I mean, first, of course, there's the technical innovation that underlies scientific innovation. And in my career and in the sector I'm in now, I've seen a lot of that. So for instance, you know, the advent of gene sequencing is what has blown open cell and gene therapy to a large extent. And now we're experiencing the power of gene editing technologies, zinc fingers, talons, and mm. especially CRISPR, um, which, which received the Nobel Prize. I think another kind of scientific innovation that I'm interested in, however, is sort of the process of science. And I know we'll talk about this later, but hmm. you know, in that regard, I'm interested in how do you have multidisciplinary, diverse groups mm -hmm. working on science. I have had in my own experience in business school and elsewhere, a lot of learnings around it can be much simpler and much easier to be in a team of people who are, you know, like you, have your mm -hmm. background, your scientific interest, your Myers-Briggs type. But it's, it's well shown that those teams that are similar really don't come up with breakthroughs right. at anywhere near the rate that, that diverse teams do. So, so there's that whole kind of process. And then and then finally, I would say, uh, you know, we're focused too on the part of scientific innovation, which is really public policy innovation. And certainly for cell and gene therapy, the, the scientific innovation that we're really focused on won't make it to patients unless we have commercial and public policy innovation too. So, so I kind of think about th those sort of three buckets of innovation as all being essential to the task. 
I mean, I thank you so much for emphasizing the importance of diversity of thought. Um, I think a multi-pronged, multi-factorial, multidisciplinary approach to any type of innovation is the key. So, and, and I'm so proud that that is a, a priority for your organization arm. And I cannot wait to get into that with you. But for now, I'm so curious about you. Um, Obviously, in, in our research, we found out so many great insights about you. And so it makes me wonder, what would you consider to be your most significant uh, professional accomplishment to date? You know, as you kind of pointed out at the beginning, I've been really fortunate in my career to do different kinds of things and be yeah. different, different environments. I started out in the Congress. I got to spend time in GE, focused on their uh, science and technology portfolio, you know, I did business school. So I've been in big and in, in little companies and at the NIH, but I have to say it's, it, it, you know, I, I'm most proud of what's happening at ARM now. You know, I've been able to really hmm. um, advance ARM. We've grown, we, we doubled the size of the organization, but I think more importantly, doubled the impact of the organization since I've been here. And there's just so much power in the sector that that what's satisfying about it is being able to harness the energy of all the entrepreneurs and other stakeholders in this in this space to do you know something really big. So so I'd have to say uh, my arm tenure is my is my proudest accomplishment so far. Well, that's truly remarkable, and it speaks a lot about the your dynamics and your power as a female leader. Now, I'm curious now, of course, we have data that showcase how the challenges that female leaders often face. So I would be curious to know in your opinion, what are some unique challenges that female leaders face and how does the life science industry compare to other industries that you've been a part of from a diversity and inclusion perspective? So I probably share experiences like many female leaders do, um, which which always start before you're a leader, right? right. I mean, I, I, I often tell this story when I was working in Congress, I was up for a job. I was a finalist for a job with a very influential member of Congress. And it was down to me and, and uh, one other guy. And um, when it came right down to it, I sat down with this kind of older member of Congress for my final interview. And he said, I mean, sort of surprisingly forthrightly, he said, you know, um, I think you'd be really, really good in this role, but hmm. hun, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just concerned about the fact that sometimes I um, use foul language and that that would be inappropriate around um, a young woman such as yourself. And, you know, I tried to convince this, um, this member of Congress that of course I did not care about that and that he could swear around me without uh, causing me any difficulty, but but honestly, I could not convince him and, and the job went to the guy. Wow. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't hamper my career, but things like that have certainly happened in my, in my career. I think it's so much, you know, better now, thanks to the concerted efforts of lots of people. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I've run into anything nearly so bald as that mm -hmm. um, in, gosh, in decades, really. Um, I think the life sciences and the sciences in general are, are actually quite, although, although we definitely need more women in the field and we've worked hard at arm to make sure that our board reflects 
the talented women that exist in this field. But but science is kind of a great meritocracy, right? People, um, I, I think the, the field gives people a chance to show what they can do. And um, and when they do it, they tend to be recognized for it. I, I was listening to a panel discussion yesterday, for example, with Kathy High. And, you know, you, you, you just, um, you know, these people are, are very, very um, successful and very, and very well regarded. So I've really liked being a, a female leader in the life sciences. And I have found my femaleness to be not much of an issue, really. No, thank you so much for sharing that perspective. I, I think that from a gender perspective, perhaps the life science industry is on par. I think where the issues lie perhaps might be in racial and ethnic uh, differences. And obviously I'm glad that ARM is doing something about that. And then we're gonna get into that uh, later on. But then I'm still curious, I should have asked you for this question from the onset. Why did you choose to join ARM? And, and what is your vision for the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I have had the the pleasure in my career of being able to be in, in places that are really trying to move something big forward. You know, that's the that's a thrill of working in Congress or a place like NIH is that you really have the power to make systemic change that, that touches a lot of people and and moves a community or a country in the in the direction that you want to go, and that's what drew me to Arm. I mean, I think um, folks who are smarter than me, the founders of Arm, really recognized before I did the power of of regenerative medicine and cell and gene therapy, and they did the hard work of kind of beginning Arm and um, establishing kind of the Arm uh, version 1.0. Um, but by the time the opportunity came to me, it was it was really clear that there was so much power in this science to make a difference for so many people who were suffering really, you know, obviously a range of of, of terrifically difficult diseases. So it, it felt to me like both from a career point of view, a great chance to bring together aspects of my professional background. You know, I'd been in a corporate environment. I knew the, how to work in the public sector. I knew how to leverage foundations. I mean, I can, I can remember in my interview with the board saying, you know, I'm surprisingly well qualified for, for this CEO job at ARM because um, just based on my past experience, but what excited me about it was, was the potential of the field. Mm -hmm. And also the, the one thing that's great about ARM is that the the board is a very talented, um, but also a very supportive and very kind, if you if yeah. you will, um, group of people. You know, it's a, it's a group of people who are really committed not yeah. only to the success of their own companies, but to the field as a whole, and and that's really great. So, you know, my vision for ARM is um, to to continue to do right by mm -hmm. ARM. Mm -hmm. members, right? By which I mean, you know, there is, there is power in bringing them together to learn from one another, to uh, find opportunities for collaboration and connection. And we'll really continue to do that because I, I am a big believer that, that many problems others have, have faced before and we can all kind of help ourselves by learning from others. So ARM is an organized structure where, where cell and gene therapy professionals can learn from each other. 
where we can move forward, uh, get over key barriers for the sector, like around manufacturing technology right. is a great example of that. Right. And then, you know, obviously a big part of the vision for, for ARM is affecting the public policy environment in a way that allows the sector to thrive. So we get to take the message and the detail and the specifics of the cell and gene therapy sector to policymakers in the US and in Europe and, and really use um, the, the, the information that we have from the sector as a whole to, to shape an environment that will allow us to get this great science to the patients who need it. I am so happy for you as someone that is slightly obsessed with a regenerative medicine space, especially when, it, when you talk about cell and gene therapies, you couldn't have gotten into a leadership position at a more important time in the evolution of that particular field. And I can personally testify as to how great the ARM board members are. Bruce Levine is someone that has been a, a mentor and an advocate for me in so many ways. And it's so nice to see how willing your board members are to, to lend their support and to empower you and in as many ways as they can as a female leader. So that is really remarkable and, and quite unique, really, in my opinion, of course. Hmm. Yeah, it's my, I mean, honestly, it's my first experience working with the board. And so it may be that I'm, um, I, I'm, well, I, I appreciate that I'm spoiled by them, but I, I don't have anything to compare them to, but, but they're awesome. Um, and I'm happy to see the extent of ARMS commitment to minorities as evidenced by the work of the ARMS Action for Equality Tax Force in creating the Grow RegenMed internship, which will place Black students at member organizations for internships starting in the summer of 2021. Can you share more details about this program? Yeah, I'd love to, as you, I think, know. Um, <laughs> this is something we're really excited about. Um, you know, we just maybe just to tell the story of how it came to be, we, like many people, um, wanted to take stock of the racial inequality protests following George Floyd's death and to really think about, you know, what's our part in, in kind of making, in making improvements, being an ally to this movement. And we wanted, you know, lots of people were making lots of statements and we really, that, that was fine but we wanted to figure out, okay, well, what are we really gonna do differently tomorrow than we're doing today? Because that's what it sort of comes down to, not just putting out something on my social media feed mm -hmm. as, the, as the CEO of ARM. So, so we, we have a CEO forum at ARM and a group of CEOs got together and we talked about it. They launched, uh, supported our launching something called the Action for Equality Task Force. And that group of, both CEOs and black professionals from our member organizations worked over the summer to really think about what is, what's, what's a lasting thing that ARM could do that would both advance the cause of, of racial equality, help our member organizations and help the field. And they concluded that the first step we should take, I don't think it will be the last, but the first step we should take would be to launch an internship program specifically for Black students. And of course, we have many member organizations who have um, robust internship programs already, and they make strides to, to have those interns be diverse and so on and so forth. But what we can do, I think, uniquely at ARM is to create a class of interns, right? So that not only are we creating, hopefully, a bigger uh, funnel for 
organizations who want a Black intern through our marketing efforts and by having a, a comprehensive multi-organization program. But also our goal is to take those interns and create, like, as you said, this is the first year, the class of 2021, grow interns and make sure they know each other and that they are connected to people in the field. And so this is a summer internship program. But after, for example, after the summer internship ends, part of the design of this internship program is that we will bring all of those interns back to our October annual meeting on the Mesa, which as you know, is really where the cell and gene therapy community convenes. And we thought, well, that'll be a perfect way for us to stay in touch with them, for them to stay in touch with each other, and for us to be able to connect them to leaders in the field. Because ultimately, we want them to stay in the field. We want them to be as excited about regenerative medicine as we are, and we want to um, give them the connections and experience that they need to be successful in the field and hopefully to stay in the field because you know, we know, we, we talked about like good kinds of diversity that exist in cell and gene now. There's a lot of international diversity. You know, I, I, I describe my experience as a woman in the field being very positive, but we are not doing well when it comes to having black employees as anywhere near the percentage they reflect in the population inside the cell and gene therapy community. And so this is our first step for that. And, um, and we're super excited about it. Well, as you know, I'm very excited about this program and, and I hope that through this platform, we can further amplify the importance of what you're doing. As I've shared with you previously, my first internship was at the National Science Foundation. They had a research experience for undergraduates and I was one of the students that they recruited nationally for this program. And then I got my first job at Pfizer because I did this internship and I cannot imagine uh, the trajectory my career would have taken if I did not have a, a, my first job at, at Pfizer, right? I think that these uh, internships make a big difference. They prepare you for the real world and they allow for increased diversity of thought in an industry really that has significant underrepresentation of African-Americans and other minorities. So we, we, we learn by seeing other people that look like us do what we thing that we might want to do. And I think the more sort of uh, representation that we have in the industry, the more hopefully we can have more black uh, representation. So thank you so much for, for this great effort. I am so excited. You have no idea. Um, I have a save the date on my calendar already for this. So <laughs> yeah, well, we really appreciate that. I mean, I think it'll take the you know, our, our friends like you and, and others to, to help us get the word out. And, and we look, we appreciate your, your help, um, through this podcast and other means, but, but yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about it. And I think that issue of being able to connect professionals, mid-career professionals, you know, executives, as well as these interns into a community is something we've heard from the interviews that we've done in building the program could be really important because we've certainly had, um, you know, uh, professionals say to us, you know, it can be lonely to be, you know, the only black professional in, you know, company X or patient advocacy group Y and, you know, that, that can be tough. So that's, that's the, a lot of what gave us this impetus to, to really create a class and to connect the class of interns to a community of, of existing professionals in the space.
Well, that's remarkable. And it somewhat ties into my next question, which is how has COVID-19 changed the biotech industry and how sustainable do you think some of the changes that are being made are going to be, especially with regards to increased collaboration between academia, nonprofits, and, and biopharmaceutical companies? Yeah. Yeah, I think there'll be a number of lasting changes. You know, I think the, the biotech space has always been a very collaborative space. So I don't think there's anything new about, you know, scientific, you know, cross-border scientific collaboration or a tight connection between government, academia, and industry. But I think there's no doubt that that COVID showed us that there are important ways that particularly when we're really in a hurry and drug development is traditionally a very slow process that the, the government can de-risk and um, a process and also speed up a process. So for example, in the, in the vaccine context, you know, you, they could say, look, we'll help you build a manufacturing plant before you really know if it works, because we know if it works, we're gonna wanna manufacture it as absolutely rapidly as we can. Mm-hmm. I think though, to, to our earlier conversation and, uh, and to other work you've been doing, you know, we also saw that it's a moment to say, hey, we're in a real hurry, but mm-hmm. in fact, diversity of representation in this clinical trial is still really important. And you saw folks take a pause to make sure that the, that the um, clinical trial population was sufficiently diverse. And I think, you know, that also can be, can be really good. Um, I, I think that, that um, we've also seen through COVID a little bit of relaxation of some, and, and maybe not relaxation, but an expansion of of our thinking about how can we um, how can we uh, make life easier for clinical trial participants? Do they really need to do they really need to check into a major medical center? Or are there ways we can we can assess them remotely? You know, can we are there things that regulatory agencies can do remotely that used to have to be scheduled in person? And I think some of those things will live on. I really love the idea of bringing the trial to the patient. And and we have so many digital technologies now that it should be easier. And I'm optimistic that the collaboration, especially between pharmaceutical companies, I think in the past, it's always been a bit more silo, but now we're seeing companies, biopharmaceutical companies coming together. Um, I love, of course, the focus on how we can improve diversity in clinical trials because all patients matter and the more data we have, the more we can empower the population. So thank you for sharing that. Um, my next question for you is that I, I imagine that emerging technologies such as uh, 3D bioprinting fascinates you. It fascinates me. Uh, but can you share some technologies or, or companies that you're currently excited about and, and why? Yeah, I think... Um you know, we're super excited about gene editing technologies, ah, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard, it's hard not to be, <laughs> I suppose, if you're interested in this space. And, um, you know, I think that we've seen, you know, Sangamo announced their collaboration to start to bring their zinc finger technology to, to, to kind of the notion of modulating, um, uh, uh, biological activity in the brain in ways that could really help in neurological disorders. And, and clearly we're using gene editing technology to expand what's possible in gene modified cell therapy, as well as in just, you know, uh, uh, 
the correction of monogenetic and maybe not monogenetic uh, diseases. So, so gene editing would kind of be number one on my list. Number two, I think we're super excited right now about stem cells, about what's happening in stem cells. You know, we um, talked uh, in, a, in a session we did yesterday about there's a company called Fate Therapeutics. It's an R member that kind of demonstrated the capacity of, of iPSCs, uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, to be essentially a to manufacture other kinds of cells in a way that could really change what's possible in say cell therapy um, and also could be a key part of what uh, could enable us to bring the cost of producing cell therapies down. So those are a couple of things we're especially excited about right now. Yeah, I, I share the same sentiment, especially as it regards to gene editing. I think that CRISPR and other technologies are going to uncover so much for us, and it can be coupled with other technologies as well to improve uh, our standard of care for many diseases. Um, thinking broadly, though, what do you think are some key consideration factors that will be important for sustaining innovation in the life science industry? Yeah, I, I think the American life science industry is is propelled by kind of a virtuous circle, right? And 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 my kind of NIH bias will will uh, be reflected in my answer here. But you know, the American people through Congress have really supported the NIH over many years, right? So the NIH is is sort of the world's leading. Um, uh, supporter of biomedical research and it in turn you know creates a, ha, has a system that passes out grants to biological researchers uh, in universities throughout the country mm -hmm. so we have a really strong public institution in the NIH which mm -hmm. in turn is creating really really powerful academic institutions and driving world-leading academic research and, and that in turn is because we have a, a, an environment that fosters entrepreneurialism is creating then the growth of, of small companies. And I think right now we, we have an added benefit where we have really collaborative regulators mm -hmm. who really helped us think about how, what, how do we bring these products to market in, in an efficient, but also safe and effective way. And I, I just think that that's, that system of public support for basic research, um, world-class universities, collaboration between those universities and th those universities themselves spinning out companies or collaborating with companies is, is, is really what makes the American system, um, frankly, more vibrant than those that we see in, in other in other countries. I mean, Europe obviously is doing great things in cell and gene therapy. And, you know, we reported on some amazing growth in APAC, mm -hmm. but I think that that kind of tripartite stool, you know, that, that virtuous circle um, uh, to use a different analogy is really powerful in the American context. And I think, you know, I, I, you know, certainly in cell and gene therapy, we track, you know, as of yesterday, I was looking at the data, we're tracking almost 1,100 cell and gene therapy, therapeutic developers worldwide. Wow. And, and more than 50% of them are in the United States, right? Wow. So, so we know that the, the, um, 
the system in the United States that is fostering biotechnology innovation, certainly in our space, is, is uh, world leading. Yeah, thank you so much for highlighting the pivotal role that the NIH as well as regulators play in, in innovation. Um, we've seen this with the COVID-19 trials. I mean, I never thought we'll see the day where we can have what, how many, two or three vaccines approved in the same year and, and perhaps many more along the, along the line, given what we know about the drug approval process. So I think innovation is really fostered a lot by the regulators and hopefully there'll be more dialogue between organizations like yourself, biopharmaceutical companies and regulators where we can all come together and have conversations on important topics like clinical trial diversity. So thank you for highlighting that. You know, um, Sophia, I should say too, you know, I, I probably under um, uh, underemphasized in that answer the role that um, investors are playing right mm -hmm. now, specifically mm -hmm. in cell and gene therapy. You know, it's, a, it's another thing our, we work a lot with European uh, companies, small and large companies and, and European small companies really struggle to have the same access to capital that American companies have. And often they come to the United States in order to fundraise. You know, we reported uh, this week that the cell and gene therapy sector raised $20 billion wow. capital this year. I mean, blowing, wow. blowing away all previous records, six billion of that was from venture capital. Wow. So, so the, the, the ecosystem is definitely also being driven by the investment community and is that investment community is an essential part of it. And, and part of what's um, advantageous about right now being in the United States. Yeah, so do you think that COVID-19 sort of activated that interest uh, by the investor community where there's a spike in, in the amount of monies that are willing to invest because now that maybe realizing how important the life science industry is, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that we had seen a lot of investor interest in biotech generally and specifically in the regenerative medicine space over the last couple of years, uh, but but nothing like what we've seen, this, right. you know, and, and as you know, biotech on the whole, you know, kind of exploded this year in terms of, um, you know, kind of stock prices and, and new investment. And I think it has to be just what you've suggested. You know, right. people, you know, people see that at the end of the day, um, this is not only potentially a good investment, but it, it's yeah. kind of matters in, in the world. You know, Absolutely. It, it, it has a kind of uh, both a, a, there's social capital involved in it as, as well. And um, I think folks have been amazed and, you know, riveted by that process of, these new vaccines um, and the, the process of arriving at them and how we were able to do it quickly. Uh, so I, I think that was very much part of the, the yeah. picture. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. Um, so my second to last question for you is, what concerns do you have about the future of the life science industry? It still actually relates to key issues that we've discussed, such as the need for clinical trial diversity. You know, I think, um, you know, one thing that we have to recognize in, in our field in particular is that it's, it's young. You know, there is a, there, we're making incredible progress. The clinical data 
is so um, attractive, you know, that, that everybody is in such, you know, we're, we're just trying to get these products to patients as fast as we can. But there's still a lot of unknown unknowns. So I think I'm not really worried about it for the sector, but I guess I would just offer the cautionary yeah. note that we will have setbacks. You know, mm -hmm. there are there are things we do not know. We saw that a little bit this this year. You know, we had some painful learning experiences this year in trials, and I, I think we just have to understand that that's the case. Um, I don't think any longer we're at a point where one setback will set the whole field back. Um, I think we've matured beyond that point, but I think we do need to recognize that there will be setbacks. Yeah. Um, I would say too that it, it's not uncommon, but I do feel that you know our scientific innovation is outpacing our kind of policy and commercial innovation you know we haven't cracked the nut about how are we going to make sure that that we solve the access challenges and the reimbursement challenges that yeah. this field that this field represents right now we've had a lot of focus on rare disease there's a there's that's wonderful but there's a particular set of kind of business dynamics around rare disease yeah. that um, are different than when you start to get to to a to a broader indication. So, so um, I think those are some things that we just have to be mindful of. Again, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm very, very certain that the future is bright for the life sciences, but, but those are some things on my mind. This is why I appreciate your diverse background so much because you're able to think through the full picture. Yes, we have scientific innovation, but how do we make sure that there's access that all patients can actually have access to that innovation versus maybe just a subset? And how do we also think about the, the diseases that are being studied? I think that the incentives, of course, for studying rare diseases, but we cannot focus on that at the, extents, uh, at the expense of other diseases. So thank you for, for sharing that. In closing, I just wanted to know if you had final thoughts. I guess um, this has been great. Thanks for uh, the conversation and, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I, I would say my last comment would be about the politicization of science, right? It's been a tough year around, I mean, it's on one hand, it's been a, a thrilling, thrilling scientific year in our field in terms of the response to COVID and so forth. But it's also been a really challenging year where we've seen um, folks kind of use science in a in a political way, and and we're going to be contending with that in the rollout of the COVID vaccine for for some time. And we see that some people are suspicious of it um, because of various political dynamics around it. So I, I think um, I think it just behooves all of us who cared about this space to do what we can to be mindful of that to be aware that that we're in an information flow um, and have conviction and understanding of a scientific process that gives us faith in it that not everybody else has and that we need I think as as people who are privileged to be in this space to be um, you know, advocates for it and educators about it. Because I think if we don't help bring um, non-scientists uh, along and to help them understand what the scientific process is uh, and have faith in it that 
that we we also it will be another kind of uh, kind of failure um, that that won't be able to overcome. You know that that we could end up with some great science being left on the shelf if people don't have faith in the process that led to it. So, um, but that would be my final note. Uh, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's one of the reasons why I launched the Amplifying Scientific Innovation Platform, because I believe in having a credible source of scientific information that is different from some of the information that we're having um, externally. And, and with the support of credible individuals like yourself, we can be able to educate and empower the public with the right type of information. Because to your point, there's quite a lot out there. Some of it is misleading. And depending on where people go to for their information, they might get the wrong perspective and the wrong information, which will, of course, inform their decision making. So thank you for supporting uh, the work that we're doing here. Um, it's just been such a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm absolutely looking forward to staying in touch with you. And hopefully, we can bring you back on the platform in the future. Thank you so much, Sophia. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to our future engagement. <laughs> Me too. Thank you again and have a good rest of your day. All right, you too. Take care. All right, now bye. Bye-bye.